You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm doing all right. Summertime. It's peak summer out there, Chad. I don't know if you've noticed. Actually, I yeah. do know that you've noticed because I saw a picture of you on the internet getting out there in the middle of a creek. That's or, right. Depending on which part of Montana you come from, a creek. Couldn't help but notice, though, that while you're out there trying to be Mr. Montana in your middle of the, the stream photo, you're wearing a baseball cap from a brewery in Idaho. Explain yourself. Radio Brewing in Kellogg, Idaho. Really going to hurt your chances when you run for local office once that picture surfaces. I'm going to tell you that right now. Yeah, I'm going to have to make sure to destroy those pictures before I announce my candidacy for uh, state auditor. Yeah, and when I run I- against you, I will be like, what's wrong with Missoula, Montana's roughly 11 microbreweries? None of them are good enough for Chad Dundas. He has to go all the way to Idaho to get his micro brew. Yeah, I'll go anywhere as long as there's going to be brew, as as you know. I do know that. So there you go. I don't think your candidacy is going to be very popular given your California roots. I feel like my attack ads are going to be uh, more successful than yours. More fodder there. We have a plan for dealing with that. Uh, we're going to go extremely negative about you and why you refuse to answer questions about your illegitimate alien baby. Well, why can't Chad Dundas prove that he has not fathered an illegitimate alien baby? I mean, it's nobody's business. It's nobody's business, but mine and my alien mistress. Next question. Okay. Well, this is going to be a spirited race. I look forward to it. We made it through Fight Island unscathed, relatively unscathed. Uh, We're heading back to Las Vegas. The UFC is going to pick up, I guess, something approaching business as usual this weekend out there at the Apex Arena in Las Vegas. You got Derek Brunson uh, against Edmund Shabazian in your your middleweight main event. But uh, as it pertains to this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast, we're going to be talking mostly about UFC on ESPN 14 where, of course, the main event was Robert Whitaker and Darren Till in the middleweight fight. A uh, lot to talk about from that. A lot of, lot of ins and outs as we close out the first installment, as I said, of the UFC's Fight Island, quote-unquote, over there in the United Arab Emirates at Yaz Island. Yeah, is it back uh, to being Yaz Island now? Now the UFC uh, yeah. left, my understanding was the minute the plane takes off, the minute the cage comes down, it's Yaz Island again. Yeah, I think that uh, Saturday night at 11.58 – Local time, it's switched back from being Fight Island to being Yaz Island. Okay. Important all of the signage, all of the signage just flipped. Is so. Am I the only one who, as the pandemic rages on back here in America, keeps seeing a vision of a possible future where maybe this whole Yaz Island thing becomes a little bit more of a semi-permanent home for the UFC at some point? Like, it's not hard to imagine a situation where things just get too hot back here that the UFC goes back to the government of Abu Dhabi and says, hey, you know what? Didn't that work out really well for all of us? Didn't we all have a good time? Didn't we become closer friends? Maybe we we look into doing it again. Maybe we look into just kind of staying there for a little while. That seems shockingly plausible right now, doesn't it? You're telling me that if uh, things continue to to get out of control with the coronavirus here in America, that the UFC might look to hashtag stay curious? You might just stay curious for the rest of 2020. Not it's maybe not the worst idea you could imagine either. Especially, it seems like we watched what happened where when the virus started really raging in Florida after their restart, and getting anybody out of a gym in Florida, especially like American Top Team or something, it seemed like your odds of them showing up and testing positive for COVID-19 were pretty high just based on location. And as that starts to happen in other places, Texas, California, you know. Who knows what the situation could be in Las Vegas and Nevada a a couple of months from now. I could easily see a situation where the UFC thinks like, all right, we we got creative when we solved this problem once. Now we're going to have to look at what we've learned and go back to the well here because it it seems like uh, 
we maybe told ourselves here in America that we were done with this far sooner than we were. Yeah. Maybe they can get into the fight sphere. Okay. Over there in uh, in Connecticut. Oakusville? Yeah. Oakusville, Connecticut, the Bellator fight sphere. Chad, one does not simply walk in to the fight sphere. All right. You, you're not just going to show up and be like, hey, what's up, guys? We heard you had a fight sphere. Can we can we kick it? Mm-mm. No. That's no, not going to work. No. I think you got to get an invite, a personal invite from Scotty Cokes to get into the fight sphere. Uh, we got music this week from our guy, Ras Jarborg. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check out more over at his SoundCloud, which is soundcloud.com slash S-T-H-L-M Ross, Stockholm Ras, longtime friend of the show. Uh, three rounds as usual this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, nobody puts Bobby Knuckles in a corner. He might fuck around and blow your knee out with a stomp if you try. And in round number two, all right, we take back all our jokes about Shogun Hua and Roger Nog. It was actually pretty cool. And in round number three, raise your hand if you predicted Tanner Bozer and Kamzat Chaimiev as the breakout stars of Pandemic MMA. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Hercules Mulligan. Okay. I assume is a 1960s pro wrestler, probably kicking his way around the territories right now as we speak. Maybe going to maybe get in, gonna get into a hot feud with Abdullah the Butcher, for all I know. I, I don't know what Hercules Mulligan is up to. Or Hercules Mulligan was an Irish-American tailor and spy during the American Revolutionary War. One of those two. from Beyond the Grave. Either way, probably writing to us from Beyond the Grave. And either way... Probably a good name for your local pro wrestling character kicking around the territories. He writes, after his submission victory last week, social distancing Jack Hermanson predicted okay. the future of the middleweight division. I suppose I could have said it the other way. Social distancing Jack Hermanson. You really did Hercules Mulligan a favor here by reading it that way because nobody is out here being like, we have to practice social distancing. <laughs> like, that's not a well, thing people are saying. No. Uh he predicted the future of the middleweight division, including foreseeing himself in a fight with the winner of Bobby Knuckles versus Darren Till. How do you all see Jack Hermanson matching up now with Bobby Knuckles? So, of course, Ben, Robert Whitaker goes out and gets the unanimous decision win over Darren Till in the main event out there at Yaz Island over the weekend. Do, we, do you think, first of all, let's just start here. You think we see Robert Whitaker in a forthcoming bout against singing and dancing Jack Hermanson? I think it makes a lot of sense when you just look at the middleweight picture right now. You got Israel Adesanya and Paulo Costa supposed to do the damn thing for the title coming up here pretty soon. You got a bunch of people waiting on the outcome of that one. And you've got Jared Cannonier sitting there as kind of a a de facto top contender. And I think that especially with Robert Whitaker having so recently lost in very decisive fashion to Israel Adesanya, I don't know if a unanimous decision victory over Darren Till puts you right back into the title picture. I mean, I know he he talked about it a little bit afterwards that he felt like this fight proved that he is still championship level. I agree with that. Darren Till was talking about if he wins this fight against Robert Whitaker, he thought that the only thing that would make sense for him would be a title shot next. But since it's Robert Whitaker who won, he's got that very recent loss. He could really use another one to bolster his case, especially if Israel Adesanya remains champ. And honestly, Bobby Knuckles versus... Necromancen Jack Hermanson is just weird enough to be a whole lot of fun. I could really get into that fight. Yeah, I mean, as you said, it seems like the 185-pound title is going to be spoken for for the foreseeable future if we're going to really do Israel Adesanya and Snacks Costa for the for the championship. Uh, you know, Robert Whitaker now just, just kind of making his way back from that initial loss to Israel Adesanya uh, back in October 2019 at UFC 243. So it's not like he has a, a a huge win streak. It's not like it feels – I know we'll talk about this more in round one, but I'm not sure I saw anything out there against Darren Till uh, from Robert Whitaker that made the Israel Adesanya rematch feel any more uh, urgent to me. Like, I, you know, after watching that fight, I wasn't like, we must get these two gentlemen back in the cage as soon as possible. Like, if it, if it ends up happening, if Robert Whitaker and Israel Adesanya are going to end up doing the damn thing over again – I'm definitely not going to complain about it. I'll, I'll watch it and I'll love every minute of it. But at the same time, I don't really see the need to do it 
in an immediate fashion, especially if we got Paulo Costa uh, waiting in the wings already. Jack Hermanson versus Robert Whitaker. I like it. Let's get it on the books. Yeah. Somebody call Steve Miocic so we can get it on the books. Let's get it on the books and then let's – like this is one of those fights where if it didn't turn out to be super weird at some point, you'd be disappointed. Like somebody's got to do some weird shit here. It's going to be a lot of fun. I agree. Next question this week comes to us from the deranged derelict. Okay. He writes, guys, Husky Gusty's heavyweight debut didn't go great. What now for the big Swede back to retirement? Doesn't sound like that's the way he's thinking, right? Like he seems like he is recommitted to this. And honestly, when I heard his explanation about why he retired and then unretired as quickly as he did, uh, it felt honest to me. It felt like he's telling the truth that, hey, he like he said in uh, an interview with Sean Alshadi at The Athletic where he was like, I'm a bad loser. And in that moment, I just felt like, shit, this this sucks. I didn't get this win against Anthony Smith. I'm really bummed out. And he retired and then very quickly started to feel like, but I have more in the tank. And honestly, I don't necessarily know if this if a fight like this tells us that he doesn't have more in the tank because I'm not going to go so far as to say he would have won if he hadn't lost. Uh, the fight was over pretty quickly in the first round there, but he was looking good right up until Fabrizio Verdum said, all right, enough of this. I'm going to get the takedown one way or another. Like, yeah. He committed all the way to those takedowns, especially because it seemed in part like he was seeing the same thing that we were saying, which is that you didn't want to stand there and just get picked apart by Alexander Gustafson. And so it was like, I don't have to, if I have to pull you down on top of me, if I have to just go dive in after you and, and try to catch one of your legs, whatever I have to do to get this to the ground. And then as soon as he got to the ground, Fabrizio Verdun was all over him and just jujitsu the hell out of him. But I don't know if any of that was a result of the the weight or anything. I don't know if any of that was a sign, like you can't hang at heavyweight with some of these guys. I, I feel like we need more evidence. Right. It's probably just a sign that you don't want to end up on the ground with Fabrizio Verdun. Exactly which is something we have all known for, for years and years. Yeah, I didn't necessarily think that Alexander Gustafson looked either bad or out of place in this one heavyweight appearance now against Fabrizio Verdum. Like, in fact, if we had never seen the light heavyweight version of Alexander Gustafson and he just showed up as a 240-pound heavyweight, we probably would look at the guy out there in the cage and be like, yeah, this is where he belongs. It yeah. looks like he belongs at heavyweight. Like, he's clearly not a massive individual out there at this weight class, but he also doesn't look like he's outsized or, or outpowered. He didn't look like that, at least in this appearance. Obviously, we didn't get to see a ton of it. Uh, it just looked like he got outgrappled by Fabrizio Verdun. When, and if you're Alexander Gustafson, like that's probably just going to happen no matter where or when we do this fight. He, he wound up in the spot that he absolutely didn't want to wind up in against Fabrizio Verdun. He got there. Uh, Verdun ends up pulling off that tricky and, and nice arm bar kind of from, from the back, really, uh, in terms of setup. So, yeah, I don't know that this was the last word on Alexander Gustafson at heavyweight. Uh, I don't know if it's the last word of, of his MMA career. As you said, it sounds like he kind of wants to soldier on. I actually think there's a, a, there's a rule that you can't retire, unretire, come back, and then immediately retire again. I'm pretty sure you've got to stick it out for at least one fight, right? And if you don't, what, the, the athletic commission will suspend you? <laughs> Yeah. No, I mean, I agree. Well, if you retired again right after this one, we would be like, okay, yeah, sure. Sure, big guy, whatever you sure. say. But I don't know. I, it did seem like from his reaction that he was like he was aware of that and like was going to give it another go at heavyweight. Uh, honestly, I'd be interested in seeing him against one of the younger heavyweights. Like give him somebody who seems like he's actually on the come up and not somebody who is – like kind of literally on his way out of the UFC and Fabrizio Verdum. Although we talked about a little bit on the power hour that it seems like Fabrizio Verdum, this was the last fight in his contract. He was talking beforehand, like, Hey, I'm just, I'm done here with the UFC, no hard feelings or anything, but I'm out. And he yeah. kind of took a little bit of a never say never approach in the post fight talking about, uh, you know, he would at least listen to the UFC if they wanted to talk new contract, but he was throwing around your guy Fedor Emelianenko's name as well. Like, Hey, you know, Fedor Emelianenko still out there kicking around. It's been 10 years since that first fight. Maybe we go over there and do a rematch. I got to feel like your boy Scotty Cox heard this one. His ears perked up a little bit. I heard Fab Verdum talking about Fedor Emelianenko. Do you think at some point somebody from Fabrizio Verdum's management team maybe got a hold of him and was like, look, man, 
if we're going to try to test free agency after this, you probably not a great idea for you to come out and say that you definitely aren't going to resign with the UFC yeah. because that kind of undermines a lot of our, of our bargaining power, a lot of our leverage that we might have. Yeah. Uh, kind of like going to the car dealership and being like, okay, first thing I need you to know is that I got to have a car today. Yeah, I, I got to leave here, here with a car, with like a car. one way or another. And you, you hurt your negotiating position a little bit that way. Though, really, let's be honest, Fabricio Verdun pulls off what might be the most difficult uh, accolade achievement in the UFC, and that is successfully fights out the extent of his contract and hits hits the exit door on the heels of a win. Yeah. Like, well, that's, that's not an easy thing to do, especially when no. they know you're doing it. Yes. Yeah. And he seemed aware of that, that the, especially for somebody like him, 42 year old fighter, people wondering how much you have left in that tank, exiting on a win makes a big difference in terms of how people perceive you. And also we mentioned on the the Friday power hour that if you had 20 bucks, you never wanted to see again. Fabrizio Verdun was a pretty attractive underdog. Like he was like a three to one under, like nearly three to one underdog, I believe against Lusty Gusty. And then he came in there, cashed that underdog check. So uh, I mean, he's got to be feeling, feeling pretty good about exactly where he stands right now. Yeah. Okay, let's put the cart before the horse a little Why bit not? here. Why not? Let's say Fabrizio Verdun departs the UFC. Let's say he's in talks with your boy Scotty Cox about coming out to the fight sphere. Okay. About getting, her, getting a room at, this fight, at the fight sphere, gain an entry. Uh what is your level of interest and or enthusiasm about the possibility not only of, of Verdum and Bellator, but of a, of a late career Verdum rematch with Fedor Emelianenko? I, I feel like the thing to do for Verdum right now is to go in that direction rather than if you stick around in the UFC, we've kind of seen what is going to happen there. Like the UFC – at 42, I just don't see Fabricio Verdun being the UFC heavyweight champ again. And I don't think the UFC really sees that either. And so it seems like what they're going to try to do if they do retain his services is put him up against other heavyweights so they maybe want to get the little bit of a, the shine off of his name to rub off on them, those kind of fights. And you know maybe he wins some, maybe he loses some, but it doesn't seem like he's really going anywhere in the UFC other than, you know, back and forth to the UFC apex maybe and keep cashing those checks. But I, I think if you're thinking about what would be more fun to do in the time Fabricio Verdum has left in this sport, whether that's, you know, two years or five years or 10 years, I think the the thing to do is lean into the weirdness a little bit with Bellator stuff like him and Fedor Emelianenko. That's one of those old guy fights that I could feel okay about because I, I don't feel like anybody's really going to hurt each other too bad in one of those. Like, I think, you know, maybe can Verdum pull off another one of those submissions and prove that it wasn't just a lucky lightning strike the first time. Maybe Fedor gets a little revenge. Those are the kind of fights where, like, I'll recognize that this is not for anything super important, but I will also want to watch that. I will just, I will be entertained by that. And that, I think, is the direction I'd like to see Verdum lean a little bit. Yeah. I wonder if the biggest sticking point to the possibility of that matchup might be whether or not Fedor Emelianenko is interested in fighting Fabrizio Verdum again at this stage in his career. Uh, he's, you know, he's on this like one and three. Uh, I guess he's, I guess he's three and I'm sorry, three and two uh, since coming back to Bellator in 2017. He's got wins over Frank Mir and Chael Sonnen and, and Rampage Jackson, and then losses to Matt Mitrione and Ryan Bader. Uh, so like he's on a little bit of a run in that promotion had been on a little bit of a run, frankly, in Ryzen and M1, uh, prior to that. So, you, you know, it seems like Fedor is trying to close out the career on a positive note. I wonder if Fabrizio Verdum, uh, is a, is a thing that he would be interested in, or if he would see it as, as too big of a risk or not quite the, the matchup that he would want, or would we find out that Fedor Emelianenko is actually human and motivated around such human concerns as revenge? <laughs> yeah, well, I would think that it's kind of a nothing to lose fight if you're Fedor. Like, if you lose to Fabrizio Verdum again, it's proof like, okay, Verdum is a good fighter. We knew that. He was UFC heavyweight champion after he beat you. So, like, that doesn't invalidate anything that you have done. And if he does beat you, he probably doesn't beat you by just thumping the hell out of your skull. 
for 10 minutes or knocking you out cold, which if you're Fedor and you're looking around at other options, what are you going to do? You're going to hang around. You're going to fight these younger, faster guys, especially with Fedor's game that has not evolved that much from when it was super effective in like 2005. I don't know. I, I think the Verdum matchup is advantageous or at least like attractive on a lot of levels for Fedor because, yeah, you could get that revenge. Even if you do lose, you're probably not going to get beat up really bad. Plus, it's the kind of thing that has enough of an appeal that people will be interested in it. Like you will get some exposure off it. Bellator will make some money off of it. Like it seems like the kind of thing that works for everybody. Next question this week comes to us uh, from Nobby Buchholz, who writes, so I didn't tune in until the co-main last night, but it seems I missed a bunch of good fights, notably Dan, Dan Hardy versus Herb Dean. Okay. Upon viewing, upon first viewing of the highlight of the knockdown, it looked like Hardy was right to protest the stoppage as late. Now, after reading some follow-up information and, and watching Herb's response on the gram, I'm not so sure it was a terribly late stoppage. I'm at least willing to defer to Herb's judgment when he says the fighter was alert, his eyes were tracking his opponent, and he had his hands up to defend himself. Just because Trinaldo didn't throw follow-up shots isn't necessarily cause to stop the fight. Also, Dan yelling out, stop the fight, was not his place, as he's not a doctor or a corner man. Dean's Instagram response was pretty measured and reasonable, while Hardy is responding like a little bit of a jackass. Then in parentheses, he says, see below, uh, where he linked to some Instagram responses from Dan Hardy, where Hardy says that he could do Herb Dean's job, uh, but Dean couldn't do his so obviously, Ben, we're talking here about the stoppage in the uh, Jai Herbert Francisco Trinaldo fight at the UFC event. It was the featured prelim on ESPN Plus. Went down at a catch weight because Trinaldo missed weight. Uh, sort of like a young lion versus old guy fight here. Trin- Trinaldo ends up stopping Herbert in the third round. Hit him with like a kind of a strange overhand punch that landed like right in the middle of the forehead yeah. and had almost one of those delayed reaction knockouts yeah. uh, to Jai Herbert. He, he like stumbled back. He hits the floor. It looked like he was out as he was going down. And then things became a little bit more unclear uh, as we got, you know, as we, as the stoppage continued to progress, Herb Dean obviously waited a few seconds to, to call call things off. You had both Dan Hardy and Paul Felder, on commentary yelling for him to stop the fight. And so we have controversy. Yeah. Uh, it was a weird knockdown kind of initially, because you're right. It just kind of poleaxed him right there, kind of at the top of the forehead. And as Jai Herbert falls, you could see him. He goes to throw a punch back that just kind of punches straight up at the air because of the angle his body is already tilting at. Like his body and, and brain are not working together at that point. But when he falls... And Francisco Trinaldo runs over to him and stands over him with his fist cocked. Herb Dean could say like his eyes were tracking his opponent, but he was not moving. He was not doing anything, which you would expect him to do if he was still in that fight and still aware that a fight was going on. Because you're letting Francisco Trinaldo stand over you in a really good punching position. And he's not like trying to uh, recover an open guard or any kind of thing, or just get himself into a better position where he cannot be so easily punched. Like he's just frozen there. And even if your argument is I could see his eyes and his eyes looked clear and he was watching Francisco Trinaldo, I mean, watching him, but not doing anything. Like if Francisco Trinaldo stood over him for several seconds waiting and then seeing that there was no reaction from Herb Dean, then went ahead and punched him. And when he did go to punch him, there was no real reaction from Jai. Like his hands stayed exactly where they were. And he just got punched in the face a couple of times. Yeah. I, I mean, it was a late stoppage. Like I understand the the argument that Herb Dean is trying to make. And also I understand that what a difficult job it is. We've had this conversation over and over again, that what we ask of MMA referees is almost inhuman at times. And so I guess I can understand Herb feeling like he wants to, or like he can defend the stoppage, but that was a late stoppage. Like that fight definitely could have been stopped uh, right after you see that Francisco Trinaldo was showing you, I'm in a position to just really like let loose on this guy. And he is not reacting to that at all. Like just positionally, he's not doing anything to try to prevent himself from getting his face bashed in here, which is clearly about to happen. The stop the fight thing seems to me like, if this happened in the MGM Grand with 15,000 people during the normal before times, it's a non-issue because Herb Dean doesn't hear Dan Hardy say stop the fight. We've heard Joe Rogan do this before on on a broadcast where he is yelling like basically you should stop the fight. And I mean the stop the fight is directed at the referee, but it's not meant 
to get the referee to actually do it necessarily because there's so much going on. The referee usually can't hear you even from just a few feet away, like on the outside of the cage. Usually the referee cannot hear you because there's just too much other noise in the arena at at that time. And this is the rare situation where the referee can hear you. And Herb's arguments seem to be that that is an irresponsible thing for Dan Hardy to do because Herb can't hear who is saying stop the fight. Like for all he knows, it may be the corner shouting at him, stop the fight. But I don't know about that. I mean, because and in Dan Hardy's role as the commentator, he is he he's the kind of the, the X fighter color commentator. Him shouting like stop the fight in a situation where he sees a late stoppage, like that is kind of his role. Like at least for the broadcast. It's not his role necessarily to tell the referee, but it's only kind of an accident of the circumstances that Herb Dean can even hear him. Yeah. And this was uh, Herb Dean's second somewhat late stoppage on this card as well. Uh, I think it was Tanner Bozer, Raphael uh, Pessoa, who we'll talk about obviously coming up in the middle rounds. But that was one where, uh, you know, it appeared maybe there was an eye injury or something. Tanner Bozer kind of caught Pessoa with his knuckle, I think, up in the eye area. So he was pretty much covered up against the fence and uh, took some shots he maybe didn't need to take before Herb Dean stepped in to stop the fight. So there was a couple of potentially questionable decisions here by Herb Dean, who, as everybody knows, longtime referee, one of the best in the business. Uh, you know, sometimes I think these things are just going to happen. You're going to have these awkward stoppages. You're going to have uh, situations where people think you should have jumped in to stop things earlier. I think if Herb Dean had it to do over again, if he was, if he was, uh, you know, being perfectly honest in a private conversation, he might've stepped in to stop the Trinaldo Herbert fight a little bit sooner. But uh you know, I don't. I also don't think that one one bad night does not a career make. Or yeah. you know, this isn't the final word on Herb Dean, a guy who's been a really good referee in the sport for a very long time. So hopefully, uh, you know, we just we see some better stoppages here in the in the uh, in the near future. Here's one from Brian Mills, which is somewhat related. So uh, I'm gonna we'll do this one, and then uh, we'll probably move on to the rounds here. But he writes. Sure, the man came in five pounds too too fat, but can we give some love to Frankie Transar Transams? Frankie Transams. No. Nope. I will not sign off on this one. Francisco Trinaldo rolls into Fight Island on a ba- on the bad side of 40, gets the shit beat out of him for the better part of his evening by a younger and faster opponent, but still manages to get it done. I guess I don't really have a question, but goddamn do I love to see old guys win one. Yeah, I mean, he shows you that he's still a tough out. Yeah. So if you're going out there to fight Francisco Ronaldo, you you better pack a lunch. That guy can still hang in there, and he's just you know gritty, got veteran savvy, and just strong, just a strong individual. Yeah, he's won three fights in a row now. Uh, kind of a a tough assignment, really, <laughs> for uh, the much younger Jai Herbert here, uh, who. I assume because of the ins and outs of pandemic MMA and fight Island, it's actually making his UFC debut here. Uh, he was scheduled to, to fight Mark Jacasey, uh at some point, but that fight got canceled. So now here he is against uh, Francisco Trinaldo making his UFC debut ends up losing by uh, a third round TKO. So uh, a tough draw for him. I know Jai, Jai Herbert is a guy that everyone is excited about. He's a good prospect from over there in the UK, but at the same time, uh, going up against Francisco Trinaldo is no joke in your first UFC fight. So yeah, Francisco Trinaldo definitely proved that point in this bout. That's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, or a concern to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. Just go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can go ahead and sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And of course, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one.
we talked in the lead up to this fight that this was pretty much a must win for the former champion, Robert Whitaker, who has been a little bit inactive in the last several years, has been plagued by injuries, by uh, strange physical ailments like a collapsed bowel, kind of notably took some time away from the sport, he said, to recharge himself, maybe uh, you know heal up a little bit and, and rekindle his love for the sport. He rolls in here against Darren Till in Abu Dhabi in what we considered to be a fight that would let us know where Bobby Knuckles is still at in the 185-pound division at 29 years old. He rolls out with the unanimous decision victory. Looked pretty good against Darren Till. Obviously, this was a, this was a hard-fought and close fight, but ultimately Whitaker gets gets the uh, gets the decision here. Did you see enough from the Reaper in this fight to allay your fears if you had any and reestablish your opinion of this guy as one of the elite 185-pound fighters in the world? Yeah, I was very impressed with what I saw, honestly, especially because, as we said. They, there was a heavy burden that he carried into this just in terms of expectations and how harshly we, we all knew people were willing to judge him if he had lost this fight. And then it was a difficult kind of fight to deal with. Like he said afterwards, how it was such a stressful fight. And you can imagine that was true not only because of what the situation was with him and his career and his life heading into this fight, but also the kind of fight that it ended up being. Like he learned very quickly in that. Like, hey, you're having trouble dealing a little bit with the distance of this fight. If you try to do the thing where you just jump in there and you know go, go flying in there with a punch and then Darren Till elbows you right in the mouth, yeah. then that shows you really early on like, okay, can't do that. Like, that's going to be a bad idea. And he gets rocked, gets dropped, gets up pretty quickly and it doesn't look that great for the rest of the round. But then by round two has not only recovered, but also kind of figured it out. He's making these adjustments. And that's the kind of thing that impresses me when he talks afterwards about, you know, I proved that I'm still a championship level fighter. And I'm like, you know what? You did because it was a difficult kind of situation to deal with. And you faced some questions early on that you weren't sure you had answers to. And then you found answers to them. And it was a smart fight on his part, like a savvy fight, especially where he realizes that the, you know, we might be coming down to the last round. Things are kind of close in the fifth round. A well-timed takedown here or there can really help you out and uh, maybe nudge things in your directions on scorecards if you're unsure how the judges are seeing it. It was a very like tactically sound fight in a difficult situation for him. And I think he yeah. deserves credit for that. Yeah. The uh, slow motion replay of Robert Whitaker getting caught right on the jaw with that elbow by Darren Till was like when Homer Simpson burps. Yeah. And you see his, <laughs> his whole like mouth and jaw wobble back and forth. That's what it looked like when Robert Whitaker got hit with an amazing kind of well-timed elbow by yeah. Darren Till. And frankly, was lucky that that was not the end right yeah. there because that was an incredible shot. This was a, a, a it was a little bit of a stressful fight to watch, I thought. It was it was a kind of a strange fight. It was competitive and it was entertaining. But at the same time, it was one of those fights where I thought, uh, you know, it kind of came down to these individual and decisive moments in each round. Like in the first, you definitely had the the elbow that stunned Robert Whitaker, kind of swung things in, in Till's favor. In the second, uh, you, Robert Whitaker comes back. I believe he stunned Darren Till in that round. So you kind of had this sort of like back and forth feeling to this fight. But it also kind of felt to me like Robert Whitaker controlled the bulk of the action here. Like I know it was a very close decision. I think it was 48-47 across the board. It was. Uh, but this felt like a fight that aside from these, you know, individual moments where Darren Till was able to come out and do something uh, – you know, a, a little bit impressive that Robert Whitaker really kind of controlled this fight. So I thought it was a good showing for him to go out there and make this statement, have 25 minutes against a guy like Darren Till, who's, who I don't necessarily think he lost much here in this fight. I think he also, also seems like a, you know, a fit contender at 185 pounds, but a nice win, I think, overall for Robert Whitaker to kind of plant his flag as being the guy that we thought he was and to be sort of back, so to speak, if you if you consider him ever being gone or him having lost a considerable amount of stature. Yeah. That said, no, go ahead. No, I mean, I was just going to say that I think to your point, one of the things that I think makes it such a stressful fight is that when there is not that much engagement in a fight, particularly in the later rounds, then, you know, 
so much can depend on what engagement there is. Like when there is a, a short striking exchange, you know, like, okay, there, there's so much work being done to set up each actual exchange, each actual engagement that they have that, you know, everything can hinge on like you land one good punch here. Uh, he lands one good punch in the next one and it's going to be so close and the judges are going to be looking at it. It's, and like, that's when I think you get to see who is a smart fighter, like who understands how do you win these close rounds down the stretch. And Robert Whitaker took good advantage of one of Darren Trill's Darren Till's bad traits, which is that sometimes he gets caught looking too much. Like he gets caught trying to set up something like he's trying to faint his way into something, like trying to open you up. He's trying also not to take any of the bait that's going to get him into trouble and get him to get away from what he wants to do. But he also then in some of those rounds and maybe some of it was due to the knee injury, but he gets caught just kind of waiting for a whole lot of the fight. And if you can just be the guy who seems to be doing more and has higher output, sometimes that can be the difference in, in a close round like that on the judges scorecards. I was still a little bit concerned by the extent to which Robert Whitaker kind of rushes in. Yeah. Or like dives in when he's trying to land uh, those overhand punches that he throws, which are, are a good weapon for him. They're like one of his, his main weapons, but at the same time, it really, became noticeable or came to the fore in that Israel Adesanya fight, obviously, where yeah. Adesanya was able to take advantage of it and counter him and end up taking his title and is now, you know, the standard bearer in that division and maybe the arguably the UFC's best up-and-coming young star uh, after that victory. But I, I, to be honest with you, I would have to go back and watch old Robert Whitaker fights to see, was he doing that before? He may have been, and it just never really cost him, and I never really noticed it. But I noticed it against here. I noticed it again here against Darren Till. Where he, when he's trying to like uncork those big power shots on his feet, he really has a tendency to kind of dive in and leave his facial region exposed, kind of hanging out there in the like right in striking range. And I think Darren Till made him pay for it a couple times, but he ended up obviously you know getting the the decision here. When I see that though, it does make me just feel more as nervous as I was before about the future of Robert Whitaker, frankly, like if you go out and fight Israel Adesanya again, I don't think you can do that. I don't think you can leave your face hanging out there uh, right in striking range. I think he will catch you again and he will beat you again. Yeah. But then that gets us to the question of what do you do if you go out there and you fight Israel Adesanya again? Yeah, that's true. And, and frankly, if we're going to judge every fight in the middleweight division based on the, the, question of whether or not we feel the person could beat Israel Adesanya and become the champion, we might be having a very short conversation. Yeah. And Robert Whitaker is probably one of the, one of the, in this division, still one of the guys that has the best chance. I just think that stylistically, he leaves himself pretty exposed for the things that Israel Adesanya likes to do. True. I agree. How about the knee injury? Yeah. For Darren that, Till here. That's what Bobby I was going to say. Maybe one thing. Stomp right on his knee. If, if maybe that's how you beat Israel Adesanya, if you're Bobby Knuckles, stomp on his damn knee and yeah. see if you can injure it very early on and limit his mobility thereafter. Maybe the way you beat Israel Adesanya is to just walk out to the center of the ring and just stand there without moving. <laughs> that's been tried. Well, hands up, hands okay. on either side of your face. You just walk out there and very obstinately refuse to move. It's been tried, but it did come maybe closer to beating came him. Closer than, than we thought it would. <laughs> you know, for me, uh, the the really kind of amazing thing was afterwards when Robert Whitaker was asked in the post fight press conference about the knee injury to Darren Till, and I couldn't tell completely if the tone of the question was setting him up to feel bad about it or maybe if that was just what i was because i saw it via twitter where somebody was like robert whitaker responds to finding out that darren till uh had an injured knee after that stomp and at first i don't know i went into it thinking that he was going to be like oh well that's a bummer you never want to win that like that's not what you're trying to do uh you know i i hope he recovers well and everything but instead when he hears like okay he injured his knee and he was like from what and he was like from the stomp and he was like oh i should stomp more often it's like that reminds you what we're dealing with here. Yeah. That we're out there playing a hurting game for money 
where each outcome matters, matters a whole hell of a lot. And if you can stomp on the guy's knee, injure his knee the way he's going to need surgery afterwards, but it aids you in winning that particular fight, then that's what you're going to do. Yeah. It's a different kind of game. Takes a it different is. kind of guy. All right, let's go ahead and do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben? And then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Well, Chad, you know what's really fun for me when I am watching a UFC fight night quality card, you know, and I see, I look down at the lineup and I see the big homie Paul Craig is uh-huh. on this one. Yeah. And I, I, I look at that. I go to the old mind brain. I say, you know what? We might be about to see an awesome and somewhat awkward submission off the back. Maybe it'll happen in the first round. Maybe it'll happen with seconds to go in the final round of a fight that he is losing. But uh, ain't no party like a Paul Craig submission off the back party. He goes out here, gets it done with a first round triangle choke off his back. And I'm going, you know, Antonio Banderas face. This is the shit that I came for right here. Are yeah. you fucking kidding me, Paul Craig? You know no, what I like to me. see? You know you know what the people like? They like Paul Craig pulling off these just straight up jujitsu shit off his back and then giving a barely intelligible post-fight comments afterwards. Yeah. Are you yeah. fucking kidding me? I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Ben, did you see how many uh, performance of the night bonuses we gave out here? Quite a few. Six. Okay. Gave out six performance of the night bonuses. Great, I suppose, for Fabricio Verdum, Paul Craig, Kamzat Shaimaev, Jesse Ronson, Tom Aspinall, and Tanner Bozer. But are we really going to keep pretending like we don't have enough money to pay these people? There's no money. Just going to try to keep pretending that we're in a uh, in a pandemic and now's not, not the right time to ask for a pay raise and we're going to go out and give out $300,000 and post-fight bonuses twice what we normally do. Just double that at the, you know, for no reason, just sort of like, ah, it's a good fight card. Uh, let's just let's just give out $300,000 unplanned worth of fight night bonuses. You fucking kidding me? Going to try to pretend like you don't have money to pay people more? Maybe what this was is when people then turn around and say to Dana Way, like, wait a minute, you told us that Fight Island was going to be really fucking expensive, and then we found out that the Abu Dhabi government was basically paying for all that and it was it may have been super fucking expensive for them but it wasn't super fucking expensive to you then he will go but we gave out more bonuses so i i'm still like it all equals out and then he can still do the thing where he's a cartoon character like pulling out his pockets to show you there's no money in him like, yeah. huh? hmm? see that's the thing just don't tell me that you don't have enough money to pay people more if you're going to find an extra 150 grand in your other pocket <laughs> Okay, you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. That's gonna do it for round number one. We'll be right back for round number two. Jed, we didn't deserve this. We had no right to expect this. We could have looked at this on paper and guessed at all the ways it was going to go down. But there's no way that we could have really fairly said we were owed a good, exciting, fun fight from Shogun Hua and Roger Nog, Antonio Rogerio Noguera, in the year 2020. Yeah. The third fight between these two, they both show up somehow looking like they are 15 years older than their actual chronological age. Especially Nogira. Nogiro is wearing it at this point. Especially He's... Nogira, but also Shogun. I mean, <laughs> and yet both of them, like you look at them standing there in the corner before the fight starts and you go, oh boy, what are, what are we in for here? Yeah. And then it's like, the the bell sounds they come out there and start throwing punches at each other's face and it's just like muscle memory takes over and they essentially remember like oh yeah no we still know how to do this and especially we still know how to do this to each other third fight between the two of them and they just they put on uh like i'm not going to say a most technically sound performance or anything uh, but the two of them like 
I don't know if they have aged at the same exact rate in MMA, which doesn't always happen. But whatever damage they've taken, whatever ability they still have to turn it on in short bursts seems more or less in sync with one another. And they end up putting on a pretty fun fight. Yeah. If you can ever say that two guys look comfortable trying to beat the ever-loving shit out of each other, it really seems at this point like Nogira and Shogun are comfortable with punching each other in the face and kicking each other all over their damn bodies, frankly. But like they go out there, had a little bit of a slow start, but once they get into it, you could kind of see, it was almost like muscle memory or something. Like these two guys have done this for so long and against each other so many times that they both just sort of seemed like, okay, we remember how this goes. And they got into it and it was, it was a great fight. It was probably, uh, you know, one of the better old guy fights that we've seen in a while. One of the better like trilogy, uh, like denouement, like climax to a trilogy that we've seen in a while, especially between two old guys. And, uh, I believe we got a, we got a listener mail. I'm going to find out who sent it here. Uh, it's going to take me a minute to find it, but somebody wrote in saying it was the best trilogy where one guy won all the fights. Yeah, I was going to say you don't often see that kind of trilogy where it ends three nothing, but the it ends three nothing, and at the end, Roger Nog, who's forty four, tells us that's it. Uh, you know, and it doesn't seem like he is being overly dramatic about it at all either. It's kind of like an understated thing where he's like, yeah, you know, I said this is going to be it for me. And that's it. Like, let the younger guys come in. Like, I had a good time. I'm, I'm pleased with my career. I don't care if I won that one or not. I can I can exit on it. Meanwhile, you got 38-year-old Shogun over here who, don't look now, Chad. But yeah. he is 5-1 <laughs> and with one draw in his last seven fights. What's really going on here? Where are we going with this Shogun Hua stuff, man? Because it doesn't seem like he's going to be convinced anytime soon to follow Roger Nog into retirement. No, it does not seem that way. Yeah, you're right. Anthony Smith, the only loss, if you want to say it in an impressive fashion, the Anthony Smith loss at uh, the Fight Night event in July of 2018 was Shogun Hua's only loss since 2014. Get out of here. That's how you would say it if you were trying to build up a Shogun Hua fight on a UFC broadcast. Yeah, if, you, if you're writing the script for John Anik to, to talk him up before he comes out to fight. Yeah. Uh, the same yeah, way you no, say if you want to like list people who he fought and won, he'll be like, he shared the octagon with, and you'll list the people and you won't mention the result of the fight. Yeah. Uh, you know, Shogun Hua, a guy who obviously has been in the game since we were all children. He's only 38 years old at this point, so like maybe not quite as old as you think he might be. But uh, as as we often say, a lot of wear and tear on the tires there for Shogun Hua. Uh, but yeah, man, he still can do something approaching the Shogun Hua thing. Clearly, he's not out here being the number one fighter in the world as he arguably was at one point in his career. But like, he, he's still getting it done against a certain level of competition. I don't think anybody wants to see him go out and fight John Jones or anything like that at this stage in his career. But if Shogun's going to be around, he's going to be doing the Shogun Hua thing. Maybe we can find him uh, a string of, you know, peers. Maybe he can fight some peers in well, this see, division. But that's what I was going to say is that finding the peers could get harder and harder because like uh, Antonio Rogerio Noguera shows us a lot of his peers are hanging it up right about now. A lot of those guys are aging out of the game. And so who does it leave Shogun to fight? He's even fought a lot of the younger generation guys already at this point. And it, this fight kind of had this feel of, well, they're both still here. They're both still under contract and they still want to fight. So even though, you know, it's a two nothing, which usually ends a series right there before we get to a trilogy, what else are we going to do with them? Might as well have them fight each other because there's some history there that we can use. And like, at least it seems like two guys of around comparable age and miles on the odometer are going out there and doing it to each other. And then if, if Shogun who is still hanging around for the foreseeable future, I don't know. At a certain point, it gets harder and harder to come up with good ideas for him that don't feel like you're just trying to get Shogun beat up out there. Am I seeing this correctly, that Shogun Hu is not currently ranked nope. in the UFC light heavyweight rankings? That actually makes the UFC rankings seem far more reasonable 
than I have felt about them in some time. But uh, I mean, yeah, you, you you know, I don't know, I don't know who you want them to fight. You got you got your Johnny Walkers, you got Misha Sirkunov, you got Krilov, you got guys like that hanging around the the bottom half of this of this uh, top fifteen ranking. So uh, you're gonna have to have to have them fight somebody. I mean, I'm just saying that uh, Corey Anderson's ranked number four. Shogun has a win over him last time they met. Know what I'm saying? You can do do it again, brother. I no, that's not what I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> uh, on that list of guys I just just read off, uh, is Misha Sirkunov the most reasonable? I mean, you don't want to see him try to fight Johnny Walker, right? At or do point, you? Or do you? Or do you? I mean, I'm know, just man. I'm just spit, spitballing here, man. Uh, I hate how much I don't hate the idea of a Shogun who uh, Johnny Walker fight. I mean, he could just beat Tyson Pedro. That's the problem with being the guy where you're 38, you're a legend of the game. Arguably the best year of your career happened 15, 14 years ago. And then you show up and you start stringing some wins together a little bit here against some of these guys. And the next thing you know, like it not only becomes defensible to book you in those kinds of fights, but the UFC is going, he's fought everybody else. Right. (laughs) Just by virtue of being around for so long, like finding a fresh matchup for him is already a little bit of a challenge. What else can you do? Yeah. I mean, on on this night, I think we just have to give Shogun Hua and uh, Roger Nog credit for having an old guy trilogy fight that did not make us sad. Yeah. Like we came into this thing probably expecting to feel kind of sad about this. Maybe when they got off to a little bit of a slow start there in the first round, we might have been thinking, uh-oh, are we? is this turning out the way we thought it was going to? And then they end up getting into a uh, into a fairly pleasing little brawl there. So yeah. more power um, to those guys. This, I think we, we must thank the MMA gods for their small blessings and tender mercies to us, Chad. Well, that means we're, we're going to end up paying for it, though, somehow. We just don't know yet. We just don't know how we're going to – when the receipt is going to come due. Yeah, we it feels like we've paid a lot recently anyway. So who knows? That's, maybe that's true. Maybe we anyway, have that, a few marks on this side of the ledger. That is going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, in this sport, we frequently talk about how it is advantageous to have the skills to be able to decide when and how a fight is contested. And yet, we fairly rarely mean it as literally as Kamzat Chaimaev literally picking up Reese McKee, physically carrying him across the octagon like a damn child and depositing him on the mat right in front of his own corner, where then Chimaev may carry out a three-minute-long beating, which ends in a very lopsided uh, TKO victory. This round, we're going to be talking about Kamzat Chimaev and, I think, Tanner Bozer, maybe as the surprise breakout stars of Pandemic MMA. This was... Chimaev's second win in what, like 10 days? He goes out and sets a UFC record, gets two victories at Fight Island, becomes the new hotness, all in in the span of about two weeks. And then, of course, you got Tanner Bozer, who got a win back at the Apex, I believe in late June, comes out here on Saturday night, beats Rafael Pessoa, as we talked about, establishing himself now as sort of a young up-and-comer in that heavyweight division. It was Felipe Linz that he beat back at the uh, Poirier versus Hooker card in in late June. I don't know where you want to start with this. I know you consider yourself to be a Tanner Bozer guy I am. at this point. So uh, I'm going I'm to let you direct traffic here if you want to talk about uh, Chimaev or if you want to talk about Tanner Bozer first. Okay, first let's talk about Chimaev and then we'll move on to Tanner Bozer. Because first, like, 
the thing that I appreciate about a fighting style like Chimaev's is that he is basically he's just standing there waiting for the ref to tell him that it's time to do the thing that he does. And then he just walks right across and is like, okay, let's no reason to waste any time. Let's just get right after it. Here I come. Uh, See if you could stop it, basically. And we've seen people with that approach before. We've seen, sometimes it goes well right up until it doesn't. Sometimes there's other guys like Khabib where you know, hard not to make some Khabib comparisons here uh, where it just feels like there's not a whole lot of surprises in the game. You know what you're dealing with each time. He doesn't change his game too much depending on what the opponent's strengths or weaknesses are. He's just coming straight at you. And let's see if you can be the one who figures out how to do something about it. Now, we do seem like we're going to do the thing with Chimaev where we're going to get way ahead of ourselves here. Because yes. he has, you'd write, like two UFC fights in the span of 10 days, unusual, impressive, uh, just the sheer dominance of the performances there where he's just suffocating people all over you, not giving you a single second to get back into that fight. And yet the quality of competition is not the highest yet. So we don't exactly know what he's capable of against some of the better fighters in the division. But it is the kind of thing that catches our eye enough to get us to pay attention. And we go, okay, tell us when this guy is fighting next. Probably doesn't feel like it'll be too long. And like, we've talked on several occasions about the difficulty of kind of standing out and getting noticed in the UFC when there's an event every weekend. And the pace is just so high that we barely have time to digest what we've seen. And we're getting ready for the next one. And three weeks after your fight, sometimes – it feels like it was six months ago and we've already forgotten about you. Maybe one way to get around that problem is just to fight every 10 days. Yeah. If you're on every card, we're not going to forget about you. Well, even with, I mean, even with Tanner Bozer, I had a moment again, I cover this sport professionally as a living. I had a moment when he showed up when I realized he was on the card where I was like, wait, him again. He's on this again. Yeah. Like I, I didn't even realize it and I would have been interested in realizing it. And yet it's just, it's hard to shine that kind of a spotlight on any, especially when there's 15 fights on the car, it's easy to kind of get lost in the shuffle there. But Chimaev comes out here and I think shows that, okay, here's somebody where he's fighting people who aren't really at the top yet. So it's difficult to know what his true ceiling is. And yet he is completely demolishing them. So you feel like, okay, we need to move him up in quality of competition very soon in order to get a better answer to that. Also, Chad, his nickname, Boars. Yeah. The Wolf. The Chechen Wolf. Apparently it is a known – and not only is it uh, the, the Chechen Gray Wolf, but uh, the national animal of the Chechen nation, according to Wikipedia. And there is a submachine gun uh, produced in Chech- Chechnya. Named the Boars. So a lot of levels to this. That works then for a nickname that I'm going to say. When I first saw that his nickname was Boars and I didn't know exactly what that meant, I I had a lot of questions. You just answered many of them for me. And now I'm willing to say that works. That's a nickname that works for this guy. Uh, One thing that I like about Chimaev is that, you, as you said, like you look at him, you know exactly what you're going to get. Like I feel like you see this guy across the room in any setting and you would be like number one that's a dude i don't want to mess with yeah number two you know exactly the kind of ass whipping you would get if it came to it you know that he's going to take you down and brutalize you over the course of a long period of time yeah because he's got the look man he's got the look and he's got the facial hair that's one thing i mentioned on twitter on fight night is that if nothing else there's i'd like to think that there's some like amish dudes out there in America who have been given a wider birth than normal by their compatriots when they go out into the world, just because like, you know, they're out among, among the English people see that beard and they go, you know what? I know this guy is not probably from Chechnya that he's from rural Pennsylvania. And yet I have been conditioned to see that beard and think, don't want to mess with that guy. Yeah. Don't want to make that guy mad. Yeah, it's the cauliflower ears of the front of the face. It's the cauliflower ears of the chin, I guess you could say. That beard, letting you know that this guy knows his way around the mat. There's a lot of things about that beard and the choices that go into it that I don't understand. But what I do understand is that it's it's kind of like a nature's warning sign kind of thing. Yeah. You know, you see that beard, you steer. But my my guy Tanner Bozer, on the other hand, 
is out here like he's offering a different product. He is. Than and what, I am uh, so into Shemaev is offering. Yeah. Like the the Canadian guy, the Canadian who looks like a goon, but then when he talks is actually funny and intelligent and polite. Like as somebody, I think put it like, he's like the Jackson character in Bloodsport. If he had been, instead of like an obnoxious big American, a very polite Canadian. Yeah. But also like, he's going to go out there with his mullet. He, he's going to tell you right off the bat. He knows that his style is not the most exciting in the first round. It's a slow burn where he chips away to slow you down enough so that he can knock your head off, basically. Then he's going to come for you. And if we'll just be patient, we'll get to the part where it's exciting. Uh, And then afterwards, he's out there talking about how he's going to crush the case of beer that the hotel staff sent him to make up for his shorts getting lost. And then, Chad, he's at the post-fight press conference while our guy Johnny Morgan is asking a question. Tanner Bozer reaches for a can of Monster Energy drink and opens it just with his one big chomper there in front. Yeah. No hands no, I, needed for that. And when John Morgan mentions like, okay, that's a pretty cool trick. He's like, yeah, you could do it too. Knock one of those chicklets out. You'll be able to do this. You're like, I'm in. I'm in Tanner see? Bozer. No, nothing not to like there about Tanner Bozer. Uh, and again, just 28 years old. And now uh, he's four fights deep in his UFC career. Three and one. He's got the loss to Cyril Gaon uh, back in 2019, but now he's got two wins in a row. And is a guy, you know, six foot two, 240, 50 ish pounds, maybe a little bit undersized for heavyweight, but at the same time, he's not cutting any weight. He's he's very mobile. He's he's he looks somewhat athletic for that division. Uh, I like it, man. I like everything that's going on with with Tanner Bozer, and I like the fact that. Uh, that he and Chimaev maybe are the two emergent stars of pandemic era MMA and are offering us such different tastes, such different products here from our, from our MMA fighters. So one of the things I like about the sport, you can have an affable Canadian with a mullet who, uh, who opens energy drinks and I would assume other beverages as well with his one front tooth. And you can also have uh, the guy of Chechen descent with the, uh, with the Amish beard who's going to take you down and pound on your face for as long as he wants. And you can't tell if he's his nickname is a reference to an animal or a machine gun or both. Yeah. Yeah. I'm into it, man. Well, there's, there's a lot to like about those two gentlemen. All right, let's do just saying stuff. And then uh, we can get out of here for this week. Ben, I've never felt more seen. I've never felt more appreciated. I've never frankly felt a UFC sponsorship that made me want to indulge in the product more than having our Otter Pops up there on the side of the octagon for the last couple events over there in Abu Dhabi. I'm just saying it's probably my favorite in-cage sponsor of all time. Yeah. Just saying. Otter Pops. And like one of the only ones when I see it on the cage, I'm like, I know what that is and I and I like that product. That's a product I, w- I eat myself. Yeah. Uh, and... I don't want to. I don't want to big time you or anything here, but uh, I am pretty sure. Last I checked, yeah, I just checked again. Uh, Otter Pops follows me on Twitter. Oh, basically, all you have to do is mention Otter Pops on Twitter. <laughs> follow you. Uh, you're right, though. A lot of times we see these UFC in cage sponsorships, and I'm not manscaping. Nope. I'm not eating P3 protein packs unless it's for nope. the sake of content. Just don't but, feel hashtag that curious, frankly. <laughs> not going to Abu Dhabi. I am especially in like the late July when it's 90 degrees over here. going to crush three to five Otter Pops per day. Yeah. That's just yeah. a given. I mean, it's just a good product. It's a good product. I'm just saying. I don't the know way, why it took so long to get it up on the octagon. The way you'll know that summer is over at my house, Chad, is that the freezer is filled with only lime green Otter Pops because I will not eat them. Okay. Now, what about your children? They won't eat them? They won't eat those. Okay. Yeah. We had a lot here today. I'm just saying. We talked about how this whole fight island thing on Yaz Island and Abu Dhabi seems to have been a pretty good success for the UFC. Got some good fights out of it. Didn't get any COVID outbreaks that we know of yet. Uh, got the international fighters back in the picture. 
and we're going to pack up the whole thing or we're going to go home feeling like everybody got to do their stuff over there in Fight Island. And then we return to the UFC Apex on August 1st and it's back to kind of hot garbage. Have you seen this fight card? I have. Well, your guy, uh, let's see here. I got to make sure I get this right. Edmund Shabazian's undefeated, isn't he? Isn't he? Okay. Yeah, 11-0. 11-0. He's won uh, four fights in a row in the UFC. Just Derek beat Brad Br- Tavares. Derek Brunson versus Edmund Shabazian is your main event. Then you got Joanne Calderwood, the Whispering Warrior, against Jennifer Maya. Vicente Luque versus Randy Brown. Lando Venata versus Bobby Green. Because that's going to be fun. Kevin Holland versus Trevin Jones. Okay. Hot garbage, too, is an overstatement. But it does seem like as soon as I look at through this fight card, I go, oh, yeah. That's what that's what we were doing before we went over there to the UFC Apex. Or I mean before we left the UFC Apex to go over to Fight Island. We were doing exactly this. And now we're gonna go back to doing exactly this for the foreseeable future. Yep, that's correct. I guess Chad, I'm just saying maybe don't take down that flash forum just yet in Fight okay. Island. Because we might <laughs> wow. need it again. So you're telling me you're coming out of Fight Island as a fan. You're a Fight Island fan over there. Just saying that it addressed some very real problems that may just continue to exist. If I come over there right now, am I going to find a $50 fight Island beach towel hanging in your bathroom? Be honest. You're not going to find it because it's in the wash because I've been using it all weekend. Got to keep it clean. Yeah. Just saying. Just saying. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Remember, we got fun stuff happening all week over on the Patreon page, including Wednesday's live chat, as well as another installment of our podcast series where we're re-watching the MMA drama Kingdom two episodes at a time closing in on the end of the first season but you could still jump on board over at uh, patreon.com slash co-main event lots of different levels you can sign up to become a patron of the podcast enjoy additional amazing content all week long over at the Patreon page keep the discourse here on the CME unfettered keep the show going we appreciate everybody over there uh it's a lot of fun. Just check it out. You might want to check it out. You As might. for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. See, I thought you were going to jump in there. With the, you're going to prop up the Patreon a little bit, but no, uh, you had nothing for me. I mean, it's the end of the hanging. show. If people made it this far, they're in you've or already, the You've already emotionally checked out. They're in or the right. You know what I'm really enjoying right now, though, is going through the Otter Pops Twitter feed, and they... Okay, now I see. You weren't even paying attention. You were just reading the Otter, Pop, Otter Pops... They were just tickled by all the attention they were getting for being on the UFC broadcast. They I love see, it. I mean, in terms of sponsorships, in terms of effectiveness, it's one of the greatest on-cage advertisements of all time. Otherwise, though, their Twitter presence seems a little desperate. <laughs> for instance, okay. tweet from July 21st. Remember how Otter Pops were your favorite childhood snack? We can also be your favorite adulthood snack. Like, hey, just take, take it easy. Take yeah. it easy, Otter Pops. That's a little... I, I don't know about that. Now, now, don't make me feel sad about Otter Pops. Also, their Twitter bio says, chill with us all year long. I'm sorry, but no. <laughs> you are a summertime treat. I will not be eating uh, Otter Pops in January. Okay. Uh, fair enough. 